We'd like to give a big shout out to Jonathan Lambert and everybody supporting us over on our Patreon site. And you too can also support us there by going to patreon.com slash mentors the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. for Military Podcast. I want to go back and start at the very beginning because you came into the military, into the Royal Marines. So how did that all come about? And were you like a youngster, like many guys, about 15, 16 years old? Or what was your story there? um, I joined the Marines. (laughs) I I tried joining the Marines at 15 and I went into the careers office and they, they turned around and sent me away. He said you couldn't you couldn't join up until you're 15 and nine months. So at the time I was uh, I was revising for my GCSEs, which is the the kind of final exams at school back in the UK. Um, so in, while I was doing that, I did a potential Royal Marine course for the Royal Marine Reserves in Newcastle, and I loved it. So I was like, yeah, that's me hooked. Um, so I went in at exactly to the day, 15 and nine months. I went into the careers office to sign up. Um, and then, um, pretty much finished, finished my exams. And I think it was within six weeks I was, um, I was in, I was in basic training. So, um, and I, and I think actually it was the right, like my mom, obviously my parents were, were quite worried and my mother was kind of beside herself, but, um, it was definitely the right decision for me. Cause I think if I'd have left it till later in life, I don't know, I don't know what I would have done. So yeah, I joined the Marines at 16, um, Loved training, thrived. Took me a few weeks to get into it. Um, I remember the kind of the first few weeks in induction. I spent, um, I think, I spent most evenings on the. It was feel, feeling old now on a payphone, um, crying <laughs> back home, uh, saying, "Get me out of here! What the hell have I done?" Yeah, yeah <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, and um, and credit to my mother. She was she must have been dying to say, "Yeah, just get on the train and get home." But um, she. She kind of was like, no, you need to stay. You'll regret it. And, uh, and obviously, I'm glad I did. So, um, so, yeah, I passed out of training at the age of 16. I won the Commando Medal, which is one of the um, one of the best awards, if you like, that the recruits deem the best rewards for um, displaying commando leadership. And that was for doing um, – I did the commando test with, a, with a, a stress fracture on my foot. Oh, my God. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I joined 4-5 Commando just before I, I think I joined in June and then turned 17 in August. I'm fascinated by the fact that you guys are able to join the military at such a young age. I mean, we have, you know, through high school and, 
you know, our latter secondary schools and stuff, uh, junior ROTC, which is a reserve officer training course kind of thing where people get indoctrinated, yeah. get a feel for military doctrine and little basic marks or, or uh, marching and stuff like that. Just some real simple things. Uh, but they can't join unless they're 17 years of age here and with the parental consent or 18 where they're a legal adult and could do it on their own. Yeah, I think, Scott, you might know a bit about this. Is it changed now? Have you got to be 18 before you can join the military now? I think you can still join at a younger age, but it it tends to be the, um, like, uh, as an engineer, you've got the uh, apprentice uh, program. Right. So you, you go through your basic training um, and then your um, trade training straight after it. So um, your, your B training and your A training. So it takes now on two, two and a, two and a half years anyway. Yeah. So okay. you can kind of go in 16, but you'll be coming out 18 plus. So yeah. Okay. I, th- I think there's a few with that. There's junior leaders um, still. Uh, the apprentice programs tends to be the, the traded type things. So yeah. infantry wise, I'm not sure what age you can join. I mean, uh, it can it kind of makes sense that um, you join later because I remember um, we just got back from a jungle trip in uh, Belize and. Um, and we were getting ready when we got back. We were gearing up to go to Kosovo at the time, and I ended up getting drafted out of four or five because I was only seventeen, so I couldn't deploy with them. Mm. So you can you can see the the kind of the reason why, but at the same time, it certainly I didn't think it did me any harm to join that early. Yeah, I was uh, curious about that. I mean, I joined when I was seventeen years old as well, but uh, at eighteen, I mean, you have a certain level of maturity. You're at least a little bit further along, and I guess that's the reason why they hold you back from in terms of the deployment. Uh, but then again, you were a part of the unit, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm sure that sucked. For. Yeah. That kind of probably sucked that you got left behind just because of your age requirement. Yeah. Well, they, they drafted me. They tried to draft me to, um, a logistics regiment where I, my job would be <laughs> putting up med tent. So, oh, nice. <laughs> like a, a double whammy. So how long did you stay in the Royal Marines then? Um, it was around about seven years. Um, okay. I deployed, um, did a couple of Northern Ireland trips. I was out. I was in Iraq for the uh, for the invasion, um, and I also did the the initial Afghan before the Iraq in two thousand and two. Uh, not long after nine eleven, um, as a as a sniper pair. Um, so I kind of had quite a lot of operational experience, but there was still something kind of missing. I think the operations, although I was glad I did them and look back on them with fond memories, there was still that kind of the burning desire to, to do something more. And it came to the point where I was either going to leave the military or it was selection. Um, and I eventually passed selection at the age of 23, I think. Okay. What year was that, Steve? Um, 2006. 2005-2006. So how was it going through selection at that time period? At that age? Um, yeah, it, it was... Um, I don't think the age was the issue. I remember um, a few a few courses before mine. I, I know the kind of the direction staff. He heard stories about lads getting filled because of their age, so it was it did kind of play on my mind. But um, but it, it I didn't feel out of place, and in fact, I was quite strong. I felt I was quite strong in my selection. Um, um, and actually, I was one of the the only couple of lads that were were chosen to deploy straight out on ops with the squadron. So. So yeah, I was um, 
I mean, selection, the way I used to look at selection during the Hills, Hills phase, when you've spent time in a unit and you, you kind of, especially based in Scotland, you spend a lot of time in the mountains getting cold and wet and, um, and you're walking at about a mile, a mile an hour. So it's quite boring. So to then go on the hills where you're just by yourself and you're, um, you run under your own steam. I thought it was amazing. I went through RSFAS much later. I was 28 years old, I think, 27 or 28, um, and, and was one of the youngest at the time then, right? Because we didn't, we didn't allow young guys into the Special Forces Regiment, man, until after 9-11. And then we started bringing in guys 19, 20 years old, which is quite a bit younger. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of felt the same way. Some of the things that we were doing, uh, long military orienteering, uh, long distance movements, but you're by yourself. It's quiet. Uh, I can remember one day, Robert, I told you the story vividly. Um, it's been pouring down rain on us for two or three days. I can see uh, a mixture of, of foot powder and blood oozing out of my boots as I'm taking steps to the, the sandy terrain there in North Carolina. And, uh, and I saw a bow hunter, and this bow hunter was lost, and he was, he was walking, um, came out to the, the, the trail that I was on. He was trying to find his, his truck. I said, well, show him your map. Uh, he didn't have a map, of course, because he wasn't out there like me. He was bow hunting. And I pulled out my map, and I said, well, this is where we are. Where do you think you parked? And I, I helped him get back to his his, his truck and help him get home. And, um, and, and, and as bad as it sucked at the time, I thought, you know, I'm a bow hunter too. I, I'd probably be out here doing the same thing if it was raining and, um, and, and for, for different reasons. But really, it's, the thing that always came back to me is it's only time. You know, it's, it's time doing one thing or another, and if you enjoy what you're doing, you can make it enjoyable even by yourself, then it's not as bad as what maybe the weather or, or, or the course itself seems to be. Mike, do you guys take um, SF um, selection cameras straight off the street effectively? Um, not at, No, not even anymore. I, I, well, no. so when I, when I came through, I'd been in the Army, what, six or seven years, um, maybe eight years almost by the time I got through selection. But uh you know, the kids coming in straight off that can enlist for it, they still have a period of time. They go through infantry or medical uh, training first. Uh, and then they, they've got a almost a like a pre-phase, a train-up that they go through at Fort Bragg before they go to selection. Which but they won't serve the, with a unit, though. No. Right. No. So, 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 yeah, kind of like you're saying, that they're, they're in, in their initial entry training. Um, but, and they've never done anything operational or, or, or been out with a unit yet. Um, but that's still only a fraction of the guys that come into, into yeah. special forces. The majority of the guys are still coming out of one of the regiments. I'm sure. So the, the, I guess there's an interesting question here then. So Stephen, within the British SF, um, uh, structure, either, uh, Hereford or, or Poole, you've got to be time served for one of a better word and served it within a unit. Um, and when you said about people being failed on selection for being younger, I heard stories when I was in about people being failed for lack of experience as opposed to lack of age. And you get yeah. a stand-up fail in the jungle, look, get yourself away, get a couple of toes under your belt, um, and then come back when you've got a bit more experience and have your second crack at selection. Yeah. So between the two of these then, so the Stephen on the, the UK side and um, Mike on the US side, what do you think the pros and the cons are of allowing people direct access into SF compared to getting five, six, seven years under your belt and a couple of operational tools? Um, well, I think I used to look on it, so obviously there's a lot of rivalry between 
between Hereford and, and Poole. And the way I used to look at it is that um, Poole would predominantly be Marines who had done some time in a unit, in a fighting unit, who were from, obviously, an infantry background. So they were already had that foundation. So in, in my kind of, um, in my limited in my limited thought process, I was thinking, well, we, you know, that, that must make you a better unit. But then the, the other way that I looked at it, and I didn't really look at it until later on in my career, is actually, whereas Hereford, there's obviously a lot of different branches within the army, not necessarily infantry backgrounds. So then you get, you get guys who, like an extreme example, like some, say someone who's been a, a chef or, or a clerk all their career, they haven't done any soldiering, so to speak, and then the next thing, they're on selection. And if they're good enough, they'll go to a squadron, a same squadron. So, and I used to think, well, surely they've not got as much soldier experience, which is true, but actually they've got a wider range of knowledge in different areas. Mm. You know, so let's say a vehicle mechanic, someone who's spent a career being a vehicle mechanic and you're on a mobile operation, it's, you might not, you know, you're better off having someone that's got that experience. So yeah, kind that of, makes um, sense. two different outlooks. But I think they both have their pros and cons. I definitely think um, it kind of you do need some foundation training. Um, and for me, you know, I if I had went for selection, I I wanted to go when I was eighteen, but I wasn't ready until I went at twenty two, twenty three. I actually went and got a, um, and my body wasn't physically robust enough, even though I'd been a, a like marine and um, and went through recruit training quite early. Um, I don't think my body was robust enough. I ended up having a, um, an injury on my right knee where it was hyperextended because I was compensating for an injury on my left foot, and I was just um, I was just a mess the first time I went on selection. But that was soon after we came back from Iraq, so I probably didn't have the best prep for it. But I definitely think a few years in the unit helps you. I, I think from my perspective, um, first of all, I need to correct myself. I was 25 when I went through selection, Robert. So. <laughs> I, I'm sitting here doing the math, so I wasn't I wasn't as old as I thought. We don't want stolen um, valor here. Uh, still Mike. fairly young, but that that kind of leads into this. You know, uh, Scott, one of the pros I think of of letting some of these guys in at a much younger age is their youth, and and that youth kind of gives us as a as an organization some longevity. Mm. When when I came into into the organization, you know, most of the guys were fairly senior, um, hitting around their 17, 18, 19 year mark as 9-11 and, and the Gulf Wars kicked off. Uh, so we had this bubble. And I, I remember pretty vividly um, a lot of the senior leaders talking about that, this bubble, that if all these guys decide to retire at the same time, we've lost a significant amount of experience in the regiment. And that led yeah. to that decision of allowing um, the 18 X-ray or the SF baby program um, and at the time when they opened the floodgates, they took 19-year-olds right out of high school, basically. Um, and they've since adjusted that to get, a, 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 I think, a more mature individual. Um, they've got to got, had, they had to have some college and some other life experiences in order to qualify for the program. Um, but I, I think that but taking guys in that young does provide us with something way down the line. You're going to have some pretty competent and uh, an experienced senior leaders, but it takes it takes time to develop. Um, but in doing that, you you do have a lack of actual operational experience out of the combat arms. So what they have is they they've got you know infantry or medical basic training and uh, advanced individual training, but they don't have any basic soldier skills. And and the I remember this as a company sergeant major 
the um the the best example I can give you is we had kids who just couldn't pack a rucksack. You know, I mean, they couldn't plan for we're going to spend 22 days up in the mountains of Colorado. Uh, and the temperature could be anywhere from 40 degrees above zero to 20 degrees below zero during that time. And, you know, I've been in tent group for 15 years now, so I pretty much know how to pack. I've, I've got a rucksack, I've got a sled that I pull, and I know what team equipment I need, you know, to, to divvy up and, and spread that out amongst two or three guys so that we can pull up, stay warm at night, and we can, you know, we can melt snow and, to make water. We do things like that. These kids had no basic experience like that. So it, it really took, uh, uh, I think, more influential leadership at the ODA level to teach these guys and make sure that they are prepared for those type of operations in training uh, because they just didn't have that, that experience level. So I, I think what a team sergeant wouldn't have normally had to do by putting a packing list up on the board on what everybody had to have in the rucksack or in their sled for that was something that we had to we, we kind of trial and error learned on how to how to figure out. That's just one example. There's a lot of examples, I guess, of what that they wouldn't have that basic deployment or basic army experience. Yeah, I think um, just adding on to that, there's one thing that you you'll never get the kind of situational awareness that you build up over years of serving in a unit and learning your trades at kind of whatever level that you you, you, you deploy at. Um, that will never be able to be made up in any type of training course, really. Yeah. You know, you only get that by being on the ground. So that's one definite kind of negative of taking people straight in. And I'll tell you something, too, to, to kind of, I think, um, tie into what Steven said, though. Uh, when you do bring people from different branches in the military, uh, not just the infantry, right? Uh, I was a combat engineer. Some of my best friends in special forces, one was a parachute rigger, one was a generator mechanic. Uh, one was a, a, a combo guy. Who, and that guy could fix a, a, any radio and and make communications, which is about any kind of communications device at the time. And um, even, I mean, from the old stuff, HF, to all the new satellite stuff that was coming out, that gives a certain competence, I think, to the team that a bunch of 11 series infantrymen wouldn't bring, no matter what, what we learned in the Q course. Uh, I, I think that that regular conventional army experience on on those types of skills because uh, we can we can teach you you know the the nine dismounted battle drills we can teach you how to go in and and teach guys foreign internal defense uw sr all that stuff um and you can practice that but what you you're not going to get is man when a generator goes down and you're on a deployment and you lose power a generator mechanic's a good guy to have around <laughs> yeah. you know because yeah. other, other other than that i'm a nug who's opening up a manual and trying to figure out What's the troubleshooting? Well, this guy can just go down there and start to work on it. And I think multiple deployments, that type of experience, yeah. um, really, really helped an ODA out. Yeah. If you're a bootneck, you just bang it a few times and you say it's broke. Or go buy a new one, right? Spend another yeah. $6,000. <laughs> yeah. Not in the, the UK. <laughs> Not with our budget. <laughs> so once you uh, went through selection, where did you, uh, where did you end up at then? Um, the usual kind of theaters. I deployed straight to uh, out to Afghanistan. Uh, joined my squadron, who had been out there about a month or so as I arrived, uh, and it was kind of straight into um, hitting the ground running, I suppose. Um, yeah, and, and, and it, that was um, and like I was saying, it was either it was either leave and become a civilian or selection because I wasn't getting that 
everything that I thought I was getting in the Marines, I didn't get. I then got when I did selection. All that kind of operational kind of tempo, everything that you wanted to do, it was there. And it was um, and it was at a time when things were just kind of growing. So we kind of grew organically. We ended up getting you know the first tour. We might not have our own assets, and we were having to borrow. Um, and then um. And then the second tour, you go back and we've got our own organic assets where we could just deploy whenever we need to, whenever we can. Um, so, yeah, it was great. It was a great kind of time. Um, operationally, it was kind of the best time of my career. Was it one of those things where you saw them from afar as a Royal Marine and decided, hey, that's what I want to do? Or, I mean, how was it that you ended up getting into it in the first place then? Um, so when I did the... Um, the potential Royal Marine course with the reserves in Newcastle when I was still at school. Um, there was a brochure about joining the Marines and I had a tiny little paragraph about um, swimmer canoeists. And, and the only thing I could remember now is talking about the attrition rate. So many people try it and only a certain small percentage pass. And I was like, it just kind of something, all right, well, that sounds good. And I said to my, um, I said to my dad's mate who was in the reserves, I said, oh, who would, what's this all about? And he turned to me and went, oh, don't worry about that. I mean, you've got to be really special to get in there. So that was, um, I suppose, there's a little bit of an ignition there. Um, when I got badged, I rang him up. And um, and I was like, yeah, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, that was the kind of start, just reading that little paragraph. And, um, and I always wanted to, throughout my career, I always looked for, right, where's the best or where it's deemed the best place to go serve as a unit is like the recce troop within the unit. And then is it kind of BPT, Brigade Patrol Troop, and, or the MLs course, the Mountain Leaders course. But it was always with the name of being part of what is deemed the best. And obviously that's in the UK, that would be um, infantry-wise, that's Special Forces. Take us forward then, tell us a little bit about that time period. Yeah, I was... Um, I was awarded the military cross. Um, I think it was 2010 that I was I received it from Majesty the Queen, um, and it was for a job that we did in Afghan in 2009. Um, and I don't really, um, I don't really, uh, I'm not one of these people who likes to kind of talk war porn, if you like. But yeah. um, I suppose that. There was a, one of the SMSG lads, as a paratrooper, had been shot. And um, at the time, we, we were assaulting our objective, and my team was in reserve. And it came across the net that um, one of the lads had been shot. And he was a P2 casualty, so it was quite, quite major. Um, and we needed to basically get him out. So there was a bit of a conversation going on about how, how we could do this. And, um, and I just kind of almost just took the initiative and just said, right, come on, right. My team I was in, I was like, come, come with me. Ran across to the Sergeant Major who had a, a, a Vips light on an IO strobe. Um, and he just pointed me towards the target. Um, and I basically ended up uh, being there by myself, engaged with the enemy, closed, closed with them. Um, the rest of the team caught up um, and there was a bit of grenade tennis going on. They were able to extract the casualty, um, and I suppose the rest history. Um, and then we uh, we end up getting extracted off the job as well later on. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was kind of bittersweet when I when I was awarded the MC because I didn't feel, and I still to this day don't feel I deserve it. 
Um, and that's not me kind of, I just don't. I mean, as a special forces guy, what is above and beyond your, you know, what you're expected to do? That's what we were there to do. So, um, but what it highlighted to me when I got the MC, it was almost like I didn't, now looking back retrospectively, I can see that I was always looking for external validation mm-hmm. about who I was as a person. And that comes down to my conditioning from, from childhood. Sure. Um, and I, and I, we're all victims of our conditioning. Yep. You know, we, the people we stand up as today is all because of our past experiences that led to this point. Um, and, and I didn't realize this at the time, but actually I was very insecure as a person. And, and I literally put a uniform on and I was Steve, the SF guy who was very good at his job and you could, and he's very reliable. But outside of that, I was a mess. You know, I'd literally change overnight when I was on leave. So Friday, I'd be fine at work. Saturday, I'm on leave. Didn't want to get out of bed. What's the point? I'm just wasting my time. I remember coming back. I think it was that tour where I was ward DMC. And we were given something like eight weeks leave. And I was, I was, I was angry. I was going to get in touch with the unit Padre. I was ringing my sergeant major up saying, just get me back out. Just, um, I just wanted to be back out there doing what, that's what I joined up for. This is what I wanted to do. And, um, now looking back, I realize that's maybe not the healthiest um, thing to be doing, but um, but that's what I wanted to do. So when I got the MC, I kind of my, my life it was a, turned into a car crash. Um, within within six months of being awarded it, and at the same time, I was awarded highest mark on a, on a junior command course, um, and I won best student for command and leadership. So you'd think life was great. Within six months, I was self-harming and diagnosed with uh, depression. Um, so, yeah, it literally kind of like went from being on track to a car crash within six months. Um, but actually, looking back, it was from that period and the, the kind of three, four years after where I would kind of, I would leave the military. I'd feel like everyone had turned on me. I'd literally be, everything that I had built up had crashed around me to the point where I was homeless and I wanted my life to end. Um, but actually, there was there was a moment of realization through all of that that it, it's happening for a reason. And it was from that that I took strength to be able to, I suppose, discover who I was and then learn about me outside of a uniform, outside of a big organization where you kind of feel you're part of something special. Um, and realize who I was, which I never did like my entire life. I didn't have a clue who I was really. Yeah. So the military cross was sweet, I suppose. Kind of, I felt like I didn't deserve it. Kind of went went to the bottom as low as you can go to then bouncing back. And if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't be who I am now. So many guys when they exit the service talk about. Um... It's good to to decompress. It's good to find yourself. It's really good to find who you are today. But I think what you're talking about, too, is not just that. But I even went through a period of that myself where, you know, it's that self-discovery. It's about trying to learn more introspectively about who I am, what I want to do, what my passion is, and trying to live my life in the best way possible around that so that I can give my own um, pat myself on the back rather than waiting externally for somebody to do that for me, you know? So I, I totally can relate to what you're describing there. 
Um, and I think a lot of people, when they go through the military transition, struggle with that because they had an identity within the military, but now they no longer have that identity outside of it. In your case, it might have been a little bit different, too, because there was an identity that now followed you. You're a recipient of the military cross. So it ends up following you and defining you in a way maybe you weren't comfortable with as well. Yeah, um, I definitely didn't feel comfortable um, with that title. And you probably can tell when I was talking about it that I started um, stuttering a bit. It's um, it's still something now that, that I'm quite happy to. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of my actions, but I don't think I deserve the title. And, um, and it, all the medal really meant to me was a memory of what I did with the lads, but the medal itself didn't really hold much value to me. And in fact, I end up um, I end up having to sell my medal about two or three years, two or three years ago, while I was going through a custody case to do with my son. And um, I ended up having to sell sell the medals just to keep a roof over our heads while we were um, while we going through the kind of court case. So it, it has served the purpose, yeah. But have you ever got them back, Steve? Um, I I now have replicas, but I don't know. There was a kind of third party. Uh, involved who kind of did the deal and I don't know who's got them and in someone um about three four weeks ago there was a there was a guy a businessman who wanted to buy them back for me and I, and I wouldn't let him because uh because if I if if I had them again I'd do the same again to, so I made that choice and I live with it and um and yeah I kind of think well yeah my son might not have them when when I'm older and you know but actually you'll have the story of what I did with him to make sure that we've got, he's got the kind of the roof overhead that we've got. I think a lot of people don't realize, um, you know, how difficult things are until they hit the rock bottom and they've got to, you know, there's only one way to go after that. You know, really it's about coming up and rising out of the ashes. And that's kind of what you just described is that it, it's not always going to be an easy path as well. Yeah. I mean, um, I would never wish hard times on anybody and definitely not what I went through, but um, the whole reason that I'm doing what I'm doing now and obviously talking to you guys is is to try and inspire and uplift people. To, and if there was one bit of advice, I'd say that if you're going through tough times is is that try and take a step back and just, just ask yourself, well, what is it trying to teach me? You know, if you can take a step back from it and kind of say, right, well, this is happening for a reason. It's trying to teach me something. Life's trying to teach me something. And then you can kind of push through it. And it's that, it's that Winston Churchill saying, isn't it? If you go through hell, keep going. Um, and, it, and I definitely agree with that. I mean, if you, I was thinking about it earlier. You think about the selection process. You put yourself through hell. You learn and you grow. And you become something. You become a better product at the end of it. And it's kind of the same template in life, isn't it? Yeah. It is that same way whether you're working out or whatever. I mean, you tear down the muscles in order to rebuild them back and make yeah. them even stronger than they were before. And you have to sometimes shock them and, uh, and and use some kind of different technique or method in order to get them to grow again because they get complacent. And it's interesting that our life is very much the same way. Yeah. It's almost like we, um, we, we start off in life and we're quite adventurous you know we want to take risks and then we get to a certain stage and it's like okay now i've got the 2.4 kids in the house i'm just not going to take any more risks now <laughs> and then you you're living by someone else's set standard as of what normal life should be and what you should be doing but it doesn't always fit does it no no not at all 
You decided to go down a different path, though. You decided to become an entrepreneur, which a lot of military veterans, at least over here in the U.S., decide to do as well. They decide to take you know things into their own hand, and they, they come up with an idea. But yours is a bit unique, and I want to talk about that a little bit because it came out of what you just described of the time and, and how important it is to be with your son that created this, uh, this entrepreneurial path that you're now on. Yeah, so, so as I touched on about selling my medals, uh, the custody case, um, my son ended up being returned to his mum during that case. But within six months, within six months of the court case finishing, he was back living with me. Um, so single single father who normally works, I, at the time I was working for um, media companies, uh, looking after journalists and hostile environments. Not a great combination, single dad, one minute, and then the drop of a, you know, drop of a hat, jumping off to uh, to wherever you needed to go. So, um, so I kind of, and at the time, actually, because I had realised at this point how much my childhood had affected me, I wanted to, um, I wanted to inspire kids to say, look, no matter what your conditioning, your surroundings, your upbringing, your environment, um, you can achieve whatever you want. So at the time, I was looking at rowing from Chile to Australia on a solo row, um, and it would be for the NSPCC. Um, but I, as it turns out, obviously being a single parent, it just didn't materialize. I could get the childcare and the logistics. Um, but as I was training for that event, I was using a, a fitness app where you could plan your goals and then hold yourself accountable. And then if you wanted, you could share them with other people in your kind of fitness network. Um, and I was using it, and it was like, well, do you know what? I'm, I'm a parent 24-7, and there's nothing to do the same. So that was the kind of eureka moment for me when I thought, actually, that's a really good idea. Um, so I had developed a, an app called Wheel. Um, in, that, in my Geordie accent, that's how I pronounce it, but I've heard all sorts. It'd be interesting to see what, how you guys call it. <laughs> but uh, but Wheel stands for World in Our Hands. And it's, um, yeah, and effectively, it's, um, it's a fitness app. But it's your fitness goal is quality family time. So you set goals, whether it's in the house, outdoors, or clubs in the community. I think it's such a great app, Stephen. And, you know, you and I have spoke about it from back in kind of the launch um, period of it. And it's such a great idea. And, you know, it, it, it seems counterintuitive to, to say, you know, I've got to track how good of a parent I'm being. But... It isn't just that, you know, there's there's the way you can put pictures in there and things. It, it's capturing those memories more intrinsically yeah. than than just having the photo on, on your phone, you know, because yeah. you get the comments and things like that. So it's, it's such a great app, and I'm, I'm glad you got it out there, and, it, you know, hopefully it goes on and grows and goes from strength to strength. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all been self-funded, and as you know, you, you were there when I first tried to launch it, and there's been issues, um, but... The, the point with the, um, you know, it's not necessarily to track how good you are as a parent. You know, as most successful people will tell you, just the act of setting a goal will bring your focus to something. Mm. You know, so just by setting that in that quick kind of 30 seconds to set them goals will bring your focus to what you're doing. And I've had, um, I've had parents come back to me and say, well, actually, it's done the opposite. It's, it's shown me how good I am rather than showing what you're lacking. <laughs> yeah, so, that's great. Even yeah. both. I mean, whether you get a positive or a negative out, uh, 
you know, outcome from it, you're receiving some kind of feedback or validity, uh, or yeah. you're doing, taking some kind of positive action, uh, or, you know, doing something. I think that's all of what you would say. And by the way, I pronounce it the same way, I guess. Wheel, uh, is how yeah. you say it. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And so just for those who might be listening, you know, to kind of give a background on that, it's an interactive app that uses technology to bring families and friends closer together, uh, by creating a united unit, uh, community, just like you guys said, and it's worldwide. So it's a positive influence the social media world has been waiting for. And I think there's so many different apps that are out there like Instagram or other types of things that capture bits and pieces that are trying to continue adding layers on it. Uh, but you're trying to really hit at the family and at yeah. something um, that's a bit different in trying to bring that unity together. And let's face it, kids today are becoming more and more app users and relying more on technology than other generations. So why not get a part of that so that at least you can start managing, keeping up and monitoring and all that kind of good stuff, you know? Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, I listened to the radio today and I think uh, Bernardo's did a survey and he said children as young as two are using social media. Yes, that's ridiculous. It but is. But yeah. it, it proves the point that's, that social media is here to stay. Um, so WEO at the minute is essentially a fitness app or a quality family time positive parenting tracker. But what I would like it to grow to become is a family-orientated positive social media platform. So you're cutting out all the kind of stuff that – so go back to the name WEO, world in our hands. So whether it's your children or your mindset – or to some people, their phone is their world. It's in your hands. So why not, if you're going to be scrolling through something for however long you're doing it, why not let it have a positive effect on your outlook as well as your kids? And I'd like it to become, uh, with investment and kind of growth, a fully-fledged, family-oriented, positive social media platform. You know, you've got, you've got LinkedIn, which is the professional one. You've got Instagram, which seems to be for everybody with six packs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then... Um, you know, Facebook's what it is. It's just editing and everything. Um, so why not just have one that's family oriented? So, and, it, and it, it's a big statement, um, but you know, why not? Well, Mike's now a teacher in high school here in the States and stuff, teaches history and, and football as a coach and stuff like that. So Mike, I'm curious to know from your perspective as an educator, not only as a parent, but as an educator uh, about this app and what your thoughts are on it. I, I think it, I think it's interesting because it has a positive effect on kind of uh, technology and, and everything associated with kids that, that I see technology really is a distraction and it's a negative effect. It's Snapchat. It's uh, they don't use Facebook and Instagram very much. It's Snapchat and there's all the other ones that I'm too old to know about. Um, yeah. But, but they, they, they're on it nonstop. They, and I, I tease them about it. I said, okay, addicts, let's put our phones down for five minutes. Um, and they, they can't do it, man. They'll, they'll, they'll put the phone down, turn it over. It's that um, dopamine, man. They're getting that dopamine yeah, off of that. that. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So, you know, and if you give a test or anything um, like the SAT, when, when phones are not allowed in there, you physically have to turn them off, collect them, and take them out of the room. Yeah. And you can see the impact it has on these kids because they're constantly interacting. And I think it's all negative, you know, because instead yeah. of now – um, when I was a kid, I, I compared myself to three or four of my friends, maybe a couple of people I didn't know very well in school. Um, they're comparing themselves instantaneously to thousands of people uh, whose whose lives that they project on social media 
are not what they really are. Yeah. And that causes such a negative uh, impact on on their psyche, their persona, their, I mean, you know, everything, body image. Um, and, and kids that are, you know, maybe not mature enough to be a 15 year old nine month member of the Royal Marines. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they can't, they can't deal with it. And it causes so many problems personally. It causes, you know, increased amounts of suicides we're seeing all over the country right now. Yeah. I think that an application like this, that encourages you to have positive interaction inside, outside and with other people, um, is probably a great thing for these kids to see. Yeah. yeah You're still kind of going to get that dopamine hit right, but from right. doing family stuff. Right. Oh. Well, it's got groups and support groups and stuff like that. So you always got to wonder, though, how do you keep out some of the crazies from entering in an app like this and interacting with the children? I know that may sound like a crazy question, but parents are going to be concerned about any application that their kids are going to be on. Um, and what is the capability of them being able to monitor it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. But the, um, as the app stands at the minute, it's parent-driven. It's about it's the parents who are setting the goals to spend time with, with their children. Um, unless, the, I mean, when kids get to teenagers, they don't really want to be with their, their parents, do they? So I can't <laughs> yeah, see true. <laughs> teenagers using it. But um, at the minute, it's more parent-driven about interacting with their children. Just, you know, spending quality time where you actually, and it's counterintuitive when you're an app developer, you want users to put the phone away. <laughs> but... <laughs> I want people to interact with their kids, yeah, maybe get a photograph or whatever so you can log it. But, you know, it's about spending quality time. And the idea being is that by interacting with your kids, you create better self-esteem, which then leads to better conditioning, better self-image, better self-belief, all these things that between zero and seven kind of lack, they're cemented and last with them for the rest of their lives. So why not kind of do that through parenting? And that, that's going to have more reach then me rowing an ocean you think about when we were kids our influencers were those people that were in within our sphere of influence you know whether that be from a church a community a school or whatever the case may be and it wasn't through any type of apps or social media it was through interaction and conversations and stuff like that that we could visually see within that sphere nowadays like mike said with social media, you're touching so many different influencers that happen to be ha happen to be in the media, in sports, or in other types of um, you know things that actually influence them in some ways. Uh, the parent has has less control uh, over those yeah. types of things. So I think it's not just a matter of you know an app like this and, and focusing with the parent, but I think there's a little bit of we got to start controlling what actually is going on and realize this could be a potential problem years from the day. Um, I'm not saying ban all apps and throw away your phones and everything else, but we got to realize what's happening, you know, yeah. uh, in society today, people are becoming less likely to communicate. You know, they'd rather text than pick up the phone. Yeah. And that's, um, that's a, that's a good point. And that's one of the functions that, at the minute, we've only got it, like I mentioned, because I've self-funded it. This is what we call the minimum viable product to get it to market. But there's so much more I want to add to it. And one of the things I'm keen on through personal experience, I found that being a single parent is quite a lonely quite a lonely job. So it kind of emphasized a lot how little interaction we have face-to-face. -face. You know, you might, you might like someone's post on Facebook or, or Insta, 
But actually, when was the last time you spoke to them or you went and visit them? They kind of, you know, and, and it's one of the six human needs. You need that connection and you're not getting it through a device. So that's one of the things that we're keen to kind of to um, implement is something where you, you part of your goals is actually paying a visit to the, to the in-laws or the relatives. Yeah, so true. Actually, you know, I mean, the fact that we've got, you know, things like Facebook and stuff where family members are on there that are long distance or friends that you serve with or friends that you went to school with or whatever the case, you feel like you don't need to reach out to them because you can see their daily lives being played out in a news feed. You know, yeah. so you don't have to pick up the phone. Eh, I'm here. Yeah. You saw me. I liked your picture. You know, I was there. I know what's going on in your life. We're good. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember who said it, but um, some, somebody famous said about we're more connected now than we've ever been. Yet we're more distant from mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And so it's true. so true. You. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So what's the next step for W.I.O.H.? in uh, WIO? Um, the next step for WIO, so um, so the app uh, has been live now a year and it's kind of growing steadily. Um, regarding the app, it would be, the next phase would be investment, maybe gain some support from um, from a large organizations. You know, I'm hoping that I can get military families involved um, to kind of create organic reach. Um, but another, another strand that I'm working on with the same kind of mission to inspire and uplift is um, uh, I'm just developing a, a limitless program, which is a, essentially it's a, a positive mindset workshop. Um, and, and that kind of covers the ups and downs of my personal life and military career. Um, and then what I've learned about self-development and then the power of the mind, um, it kind of, it intrigued me when I went through kind of the dark days, if you like, I was diagnosed with a personality disorder and I was told that it would take four years for me to recover and I would have to do X, Y, and Z and chuck loads of medication. And I was kind of, and it, there was times when actually I thought, well, I can't trust my own reality. Everything that's kept me alive, I can't, can't trust. Um, and I actually felt like I was losing my mind, but there was something in me that kind of was like, nah, this isn't true. And, it, and I, literally within six to eight weeks of being diagnosed with this, I was then signed back off fit and then back working. And I, I think I was out in, um, within a month of being signed off, I was out in Eastern Ukraine looking after journalists. So I was kind of like, well, the mines in the military, you kind of take for granted what you do. But actually, the, that made me realize how strong the mind is. And it could be your best mate or your worst enemy. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, I've been, um, I've been really passionate about um, self-development and learning about the power of the mind. So now I've put it into a workshop that I wanted to, to deliver, whether it's corporates or just general public schools. I'm doing a talk for a, a veterans charity um, for lads who have just kind of, like we're talking about, struggled with their identity and kind of lost a bit of focus in their life. So I'm doing a talk for them later on this month. Uh, so, yeah, that's the, that's the next step, I suppose. No, I think it's great. And what's, you know, in our Facebook uh, page, actually speaking of Facebook, within our private group and everything, you put the link to the app and more information that's there. So maybe you can kind of share with the listeners where they can learn more about WIO, where they can find it, um, and, uh, you know, on social media or within the app store and those types of things. Yeah, so um, at the minute, it's it's only on iOS, so it's only available in the app store. 
and it should be available in every English-speaking country's app store. Uh, so it should be available pretty much globally. Um, and we're looking for investment to then make it for for Android and then kind of progress from there. Um, but yeah, we've got a, we've got a Facebook page, We Are Life, and Instagram the same, and you can kind of see daily snippets of um, my life story with being a single parent, and kind of you can also maybe catch some of my my son moonwalking every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also go to your website, which is wioh.co.uk, and right there you can download from that location. You can uh, download it from the app store. You can you can look at all the different information. You know, contact you guys with any questions that they may have and stuff. And so I think it's it's great. You've got a great premise here, a great story. And when you think about where you've come from and where you're headed right now, where your future's uh, taking you, um, I, I can really see how you're enjoying about giving back and how much you're focused on the things that are most important to you now. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for saying, Robert. Um, definitely, um, it's uh, it's been a tough few years, but I definitely think now things are going to start materializing. It's um, and it's all part of the journey, isn't it? It's been great. So yeah, awesome, mate. I really appreciate you coming on our show and sharing your story and uh, talking about this app as well. And I hope uh, people go out there and and help you out and download it. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, guys. It's been a been a pleasure. <laughs>